This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I sort of put my challenges in four categories. Crosswinds, then I would say more broadly weather, you know, convective activity, there was a lot of that. The others were flying in uh, congested airspace. And then fourth, mountain flying. I'd never done any mountain flying. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden, and today's guest is John Lancaster. John is a former reporter for the Washington Post for 20 plus years. Then he moved on to be a freelance writer for National Geographic and other widely known publications. John's a general aviation pilot. He earned his certificate in 1980, flew for a couple years, and then like many pilots, got busy with career and family and laid off flying for quite a while and came back to flying in 2017. He's logged about 200 total hours, about half of that in the last year and a half or so. And John took an interesting trip earlier this summer in a flight designed CTLSI light sport aircraft. John set out on an adventure to recreate the 1919 transcontinental air race. And in doing so, he was a pilot who'd been out of flying for a while, flying an unfamiliar route across country and over mountainous terrain, things that he'd never done before. And there are a lot of lessons learned in how John prepared for the trip and how he executed the trip and his thought process as he went about it. And John's here to talk to us about that trip and some of the adventures he had along the way. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Richard. So tee this up for us a little bit. You went on quite an adventure, but it has a historical piece to it. Can you share that with us? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so the context for this trip, uh, which was in its broadest sense, a flight from uh, Long Island, New York, to to the San Francisco Bay Area and back, uh, to I was retracing the route of the 1919 transcontinental air race, which was a army-sponsored uh, contest designed to sort of prove the viability of uh, of aviation, basically in the in the months immediately after World War One, and. Uh, I, I, and I should further add that I'm working on a book about this, and, and I, I felt that if I were going to write with any authority about what these uh, World War One era pilots uh, saw and, and experienced, that I should actually fly the route myself and, and land wherever possible at the uh, at the same place as they landed. Uh, they landed at about, uh, well, 20 stops, counting Long Island and San Francisco. So I landed at 19 of the 20 
uh, original stops. One of them no longer has an airport, St. Paul, Nebraska. But uh, I, I tried to recreate the route as, as best I could. And, and so that was, that was the, uh, the purpose for this trip. Hmm. Interesting. And so uh, you decided to do this in a light sport aircraft. And what was part of that decision making? Well, a whole bunch of things went into it. You know, I had uh, I had my private certificate, as you mentioned. I, you know, they, they don't expire, uh, and I I uh, wanted to get current again. And so I, you know, I had a choice. I, I actually was going to buy a pretty. I decided fairly early on that I was going to buy a plane, and I just you know comparing my mission needs with the aircraft out there, I just decided that the light sport sort of fit my needs better than a larger air, aircraft. Um, I was attracted by the, you know, 4.2 gallons per hour cruise. And, uh, you know, in terms of performance, uh, my plane cruises at about 108 knots, which is certainly, you know, comparable to a 172 or maybe even a little bit better in some cases. And um, I just like the simplicity, the efficiency. Uh, and I also like the uh, sophisticated avionics that uh, that a lot of the newer light sports uh, have. And um, so for all those reasons, it just seemed like uh, like the right choice for me. Yeah, yeah. Seems like uh, you, you really thought that choice out pretty well. So can you tell us a little bit about your trip and some of the what were some of the more adventurous uh, parts that, that you experienced? And were there were there any places where you really kind of got in a bind and, you know, got, got a little bit nervous? <laughs> um, well, there were definitely a few anxious moments. Um, you know, I think uh, I think some of them I'd, I'd anticipated. Uh, I mean, I, I won't do this in chronological or geographic order, but if you want to start at the top, I guess, I, I, as I said, I, you know, I had a fair amount. I'd, I'd flown fairly intensively in the year before the trip, but I still had a limited range of experience. I've ne- I'd never really landed in heavy crosswinds, for example. I mean, I'd done some some training in, in lighter crosswinds. And, you know, I knew that on a trip this long, I was going to encounter some unfamiliar conditions. Um, and sure enough, I, I did. Uh, I guess, you know, one particular episode that bears mentioning is uh, when I was flying, uh, well, I was still on my, my uh, westbound leg and I was in Nebraska, which gets pretty windy, as, as you know. And uh, I, I was flying from uh, North Platte, Nebraska to uh, Sydney, Nebraska, which is sort of on the far western uh, western side of Nebraska near Wyoming uh, in, the, in the Great Plains. And um, when I took off, you know, I, I checked the weather and the winds seemed reasonable and the winds at uh, uh, Sydney were, you know, well within my, my uh, limits. And uh, and then, you know, an hour or so into the flight, I called up the, the Sydney uh, METAR uh, on my Garmin. And uh, sure enough, the winds had jumped substantially and were, you know, I, I can't recall the exact numbers. I think they were gusting to 23 to 25 or something and blowing about 40 degrees off the runway. So I, I pulled out my flight computer that I, on my iPhone and punched in the numbers. And sure enough, it was really just slightly above the aircraft's published crosswind capability. It was really right on the margin. I think the plane's published capability is 16 and my, you know, it was, it was, it was about 16.1, as I recall. So certainly on the margins as far as the aircraft and definitely on the margins as far as I was concerned, I'd never landed in a crosswind like that. And so I was fairly nervous coming in. I mean, I did contemplate diverting. On the other hand, you know, there weren't a lot of airports in the area. It was windy everywhere. Um, and it just didn't look like my options would be a whole lot better elsewhere. So, you know, I, I figured, well, I, I would just <laughs> give it a try. And, um, 
And sure enough, I bounced the first landing pretty badly. I was set up on the, on my final approach, and the um, everything seemed pretty good, pretty stable. I was crabbed into the wind, and then I straightened out as one is trained to do. Um, but uh, just as I was sort of settling into ground effect, it was a big gust, and it it just blew me hard to the left. And there was a crosswind was coming from the right, so I you know I bounced off the left wheel. And it was kind of one of those moments where I think had I had a little less experience and maybe if I hadn't been trained, I think, as well as I think I was trained, I probably would have tried to save the landing, as I have done in the past on occasion, just by adding a little power or whatever and kind of hoping for the best, which I had been told by a very authoritative source was a bad idea in that particular aircraft and maybe in any aircraft. Um, actually, I had got to know the president of flight design a little bit, Tom Pagini, and he said, I remember him saying this to me specifically before I left. He said, look, if you bounce, go around. And, um, you know, I, that had been my plan all along. And so I didn't hesitate. And I just, you know, shoved the throttle forward and went around. And I thought, well, next time, you know, I'll, I'll know what to expect. And, you know, I, that was absolutely the right decision because I, you know, my nerves kind of settled <laughs> as I had time to rethink it through and uh, set up again. Uh, and then this time, you know, I, I was kind of ready, ready for it. And, you know, I won't say it was the most elegant landing I ever made, but I, I did, in fact, you know, get the right wheel down first as, as one is supposed to and then the left wheel and, you know, landed solidly, I would say, and stayed on the ground. And, um, and then even just taxiing in that wind was, was a challenge, I remember, just keeping the, the wings on the ground. And uh, so when I got over to the, to the ramp, I was uh, in a big hurry to tie it down, as you might imagine. But it all worked out, and it was a, it was a great, uh, great lesson. And so I'd say that was that was kind of the scary moment for me. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's actually underappreciated about light sports that they can be challenging in uh, in strong wind conditions, not e- e- any wind, but especially a crosswind because they are light. Yep. And they do get pushed around a little bit by the wind, and there's you know there's limited control authority given the size of the airplanes and your control surfaces. So it really is a factor when you're flying light sports. It's I almost uh, when I what I tell people is it's almost like flying a tail dragger. When you fly a tail dragger, you're really keen to the winds at all times, where they're coming from, and you know the the speed of them and so forth. And I find that I'm just as attuned when I fly a light sport because it can be uh, you know just as significant. Yeah, that's really true. And I think actually one of the toughest things for me transitioning from a you know standard uh, single engine to light sport was just getting used to sort of how twitchy they are, you know, particularly in, in landing. I mean, I think it's it's a great airplane. I think it's a safe airplane, but it definitely takes an extra level of, I think, attention when you're when you're landing, because as you say, they get they get blown around and it's, and it's slippery. My, you know, my plane has no a wing struts, it's, it's very slick, it's got you know, very low parasite drag, and it, it tends to float even in the best of circumstances. You really have to, really have to be sort of on your game to land it well. And, um, and then obviously in a crosswind, it's a particular challenge. I, 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 did, I was lucky enough to have a very good instructor back in, in Maryland where I did a lot of my training, and he, he was very good about just helping me kind of relax in that last moment and just kind of keeping things loose and just being responsive. You just have to be kind of quick on your feet, quick with the ailerons, quick with the rudder. But once you get used to it, you know, your, your confidence level goes up a lot. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I find most uh, light sports are, are pretty pitch sensitive uh, to your point. So um, mm-hmm. much more than so. For example, if I, I fly a Navion, that's kind of a a rather heavy airplane, and if you go from that to flying a light sport, you really notice the pitch sensitivity of the light sport. Yeah, and how much it moves around, especially right in that latter stage of landing, just as you're rounding out to flare. Yeah, it really. I mean, I've I've ballooned more landings than I care to admit. I mean, you just you think everything's fine, and then you just give it a little too much pitch, and all of a sudden you're another you're 15 feet off the runway when you you know you were just a few feet off the runway a moment earlier. So, so uh, yeah, you do have to pay attention and just get used to the subtleties of controlling it. But it's like anything; it's just you know the more you do it, the the better you get. Yeah, we try to caution uh, pilots from, you know, from the the normal category, the utility category, if you will, when you go into light sport airplanes, be careful. Don't be dismissive of, oh, it's just a light sport. Because just like anything in in aviation, any different category or class airplane you fly requires a little bit of a unique skill or unique perspective. And if you come in and thinking, oh, well, this should be easy, it's just a light sport. Um, Most light sport accidents come from people with, you know, the full pilot certificate that end up uh, banging it because they don't don't appreciate just the nuances of flying that light sport. That's right. And I think, and to your point, I, I believe I'm correct in saying this, I think most light sports accidents, the biggest category of accidents is runway loss of control. Uh, so that really is the issue with these aircraft in, in my view. But again, like anything, uh, you know, practice makes perfect. And I think they they can be very safely flown and landed as as long as you, uh, you know, have a respect for what they can and can't do. Yeah, great. Yeah, so I can see how that would be a challenge um, going in across Nebraska like that. So <laughs> what was your next challenge? Well, you know, there were a bunch of them, really. I mean, I, I think, what, so, so I, I sort of put my would put my challenges in, in four categories. I would say, you know, crosswinds, well, we covered that. I think that was my sort of most uh, anxiety-producing crosswind moment. And then I would say more broadly weather, you know, convective activity. There was a lot of that, and we can get to that in a moment. And I'm not necessarily ranking these in order of seriousness, but then the the others were uh, flying in uh, congested airspace. So I guess, I guess, I would say, and, and then fourth, mountain flying. I've never done any mountain flying. So we can, we can deal with each one of those individually. But I guess if I were going to rank sort of the second most anxiety-producing event, and there were several actually in this category, it was just flying in really congested airspace. So I'd never done it before. For practice, I'd flown in and out of some Class C airports like Richmond, which is not far from my home base in Maryland. But, it, you know, it was a quiet day and it wasn't any big deal. There were just a few different procedures in terms of, you know, getting clearance for departure and that sort of thing. But what really threw me, um, even right from the get-go, I mean, I, was, I took off from um, Republic Airport in Long Island. And that, of course, is right below all the controlled airspace for Kennedy and, uh, and LaGuardia. Um, so it's very, very busy airspace. So just, just taking off and, you know, having to be, obviously be very mindful about where the floors for the Class B were and talking to departure control and getting vectored and, you know, looking for this traffic and that traffic. That was an experience in and of itself. didn't last very long because I was, you know, out over Long Island Sound very quickly and, and on my way. But, and I, actually, I do remember one one like sort of learning experience just from that moment. I, I, I tried to use flight following before I left, but I hadn't used it all that much. And I remember when I was talking to departure control on my way out of the out of uh, Long Island, and they said, "Well, 
what's your position? Of course, it's an obvious question, and I should have anticipated it and had the answer, you know, ready. And I realized, well, I sort of knew generally where I was, but I didn't have, and I, I didn't know how far west of the airport I was, which I should have known. And so, of course, I had to kind of mumble something about, uh, give me a minute, which is, you know, not the best thing to say to a controller in New York airspace. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want to, they don't want to waste their time. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, I had to be fumbling with my Garmin and, you know, touching the airport. And okay, yeah, I'm eight miles west of the of Republic, but, you know, I should have had that answer ready. So that was a good lesson to me right then and there, just to anticipate these sorts of questions from ATC. But I, I will tell you that in terms of dealing with congested airspace, the most kind of harrowing, <laughs> or harrowing is probably too strong a word, but the uh, most tense uh, experience I had was just flying into uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, because there you're dealing with you know, first you've got terrain because there's some pretty high hills uh, on you know in the East Bay, like Mount Diablo and stuff. So you're paying attention to terrain, and then you've got this incredibly complex layered airspace. You know, you've got, you know, got three major airports within the 25 mile radius. You got a big body of water, and you have tons of traffic. And you know, I, I was I was sweating. I mean, for you know, once once they sort of I took off from Sacramento and. And then, you know, within a few minutes, I was, they were starting to vector me from my entry into the Bay Area. And, you know, you just had to really pay attention. And then, and also, you know, you're looking at your panel and, and the panel was just really crowded with traffic. I mean, there's traffic helicopters, there's military, there's commercial, there's GA, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and I, the guy must have vectored me, you know, four or five times, which is, uh, you know, certainly a, a first for me. And then when I got to the sort of near the water on the east, in the East Bay, um, you know, he wanted me to go below 1500 to stay below the Class B, the, you know, because all the for all the approaching air, landing aircraft at uh, SFO, because I was flying into San Carlos, which is which is south of San Francisco's main airport. And that was interesting, too, because, all you know, I just wasn't used to flying over large bodies of water at, you know, 1,500 feet. Right. And uh, so I was very, very happy when, uh, you know, I was finally lined up uh, over the numbers at San Carlos and, you know, I'd avoided any mishaps and didn't get yelled at by ATC. And <laughs> that was sort of a baptism by fire for me. You um, know, I can see how that would be uh, intimidating to a relatively inexperienced pilot. I mean, at, at this time you had a total of 200 hours, but half of that was, what, 20 years ago or something or close to it. 40. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So, I'm sorry. Yeah. So yeah. half of that was 40 years ago, you know, from yeah. 1980. So here you are getting back into flying and you undertake this challenge to go across country and you're going to go in and out of this really some of the most congested airspace around the country, New York and then San Francisco and suddenly you go from this uh, VFR pilot, and now you're in the most congested airspace. The comms are really rapid. You've got to really be on your game about knowing your altitudes and limits and reading maps and being able to identify traffic. And I can totally see how the, the preparation for that would, uh, would really kind of jump on you. Yeah, that's true. And, and you really, there's just sort of a, a different kind of vocabulary that you know, controllers use in congested airspace. I mean, you know, all the, just the idea of sort of being given headings all the time to fly. I mean, that's, you know, if you just fly around to uncontrolled or class D airports, I mean, that doesn't, doesn't really happen. And, and, uh, uh, and also, you know, I, I was just, un, I was unprepared for, I, I mentioned, I think we're flying out of New York, you know, for sort of being ready with my exact position. Just when I was flying into Salt Lake, Salt, the Salt Lake City basin, basically after crossing the Wasatch range, 
you know, I, I had successfully navigated the mountains and I was feeling pretty good. And I was talking to, to a South Salt Lake approach and they said, well, fly to the highway something, highway 15 intersection or something. It was a, it was a inter, some, some highway intersection that of course I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. It didn't show up. It wasn't obvious from my sectional. So I just, you know, I kind of inferred from the context that he wanted me to head south, and I sort of made an educated guess. And instead of just confessing that I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, and I needed, I needed a vector. And you know, I, I've subsequently learned that when that happens, you just say sorry, unfamiliar, and you know, it's no problem. And they tell you we'll fly this heading or whatever. And but I didn't know that at the time because it, it, it never occurred to me. It seems obvious in retrospect. But I will say that having been through that experience that when it happened again in the barrier, actually this was on my outbound trip when I, when I left San Francisco a few days later, I was flying, I wanted to do a, a, a bit what they call a bay tour. I wanted to fly up and fly around the bay a bit and take a look at the Presidio and Chrissy Field, which was the West Coast starting point for the 1919 transcontinental race. And then of course, fly along the Golden Gate Bridge and up to Sausalito. And uh, ATC was, was happy to accommodate me, but they said, you know, fly to the, just fly over the numbers at uh, the Oakland airport. And then you know, turn left to the Coliseum. And I don't know where the Oakland Coliseum is. I mean, I, I guess, I assume it's on the sectional, but, you know, it's tough to, you know, you're, you're looking outside the cockpit. You don't have time to sort of right. parse the, all the details on the map. And so I just said, sorry, unfamiliar. And he said, oh, okay, we'll just fly this heading and then, you know, fly west and just, you know, keep the Bay Bridge on your left. So that was, everything was fine. Um, but again, that's all part of the, part of the learning experience. That's why, they do, why, why we do these trips to challenge ourselves a bit. So that's uh, the congested airspace. I'm really interested to hear about the mountains, crossing the mountains, you know, never having done it in a GA airplane and doing it in a light sport airplane. (laughs) So talk to us about your preparation and and how that felt and some of the intimidation going into that. Well, this was probably in my head, I built this up into kind of the most daunting Mm -hmm. challenge. As it happens, you know, some of the most dramatic and lethal events of the 1919 transcontinental air race occurred in mountains, as you might imagine. I mean, these guys had no instruments and they flew into snowstorms and, you know, their planes were really not designed for performing well at high altitudes and that sort of thing. So, and there were, there were a number of fatal crashes actually in the, in the Wyoming mountains uh, during the course of this race. So I, I knew that this was potentially hazardous undertaking. And I, I know that more experienced pilots, when they learned of my plan, <laughs> were not necessarily all that enthusiastic about the idea and suggested that I might be biting off more than I can chew. And they may well have been right. Having said that, I will tell you that my cro- mountain crossings were largely an anticlimax. I mean, I, I determined, obviously, that I wasn't going to go in anything other than good weather. And I was lucky enough that I really didn't have any serious weather issues. I mean, my first mountain crossing was um, uh, in Wyoming. After I left Sydney, I flew to Cheyenne and then Rollins, which requires you know navigating the Medicine Bow Range. But just as in 1919, there's a pretty easy way to navigate the Medicine Bow Range, which is basically just fly around it. You fly to the north. I mean, these guys in in 1919 followed the uh, Union Pacific Railroad, which they called the Iron Compass. In my case, I followed, you know, in a lot of cases, my route was the same as Interstate 80, which which basically parallels the UP Railroad. And if you think about it, that makes sense, because if you're building a railroad or a highway through the mountains, you're obviously going to pick the the path of least resistance with the lowest terrain. And so 
it was a fairly easy matter to just skirt the Medicine Bow Range, and you know, I, I leave leaving a Elk Mountain at the north end of the, well, the Medicine Bow Range off to my left. I mean, you're flying over some fairly high ground, but it's it's high plains rather than you know jagged mountains. What what altitude did you have to uh, fly to to cross the range? In that case, I didn't really cross it, um, and I think I was about 9,000, uh, maybe, which is roughly about 2,000 feet AGL, and uh, it was pretty relaxed. I have to say that leg from Cheyenne to Rollins, you know, the weather was decent. It wasn't that windy, uh, and, uh, and as I said, I wasn't really flying over super rugged terrain. It wasn't like I was you know, navigating in narrow canyons or anything like that. Now, I will tell you that changed on the way back for reasons I'll get into in a minute, but so that that was my first sort of taste of mountains. It got a little more challenging the further west I got because the next leg was from Rawlins to Salt Lake City, and that requires going through the Wasatch Range. And some of those peaks are, you know, on the order of eleven and twelve thousand feet. Um, and my service ceiling is fourteen. But again, if you basically follow the route uh, of Interstate eighty, which goes through, it sort of carves through this this wide series of canyons. Uh, it's not that big of a deal in good weather, I have to tell you. I mean, I, I know mountain flying can be dangerous. I know, I mean, I'd read about mountain wave and wind shear and, you know, the sort of unique uh, challenges of mountain flying. And I, I had some basic knowledge of how to, how to navigate canyons. You, f- you know, fly on the downwind side so that you know, if you have to make a 180, you have more more maneuvering room, and you approach a ridge at 45 degrees, so it's easier to turn away. That sort of thing. So I, I knew I would say some of the sort of simple, you know, rules of thumb about flying in mountains. But I really didn't have to put any of those in practice because I actually I crossed the Wasatch at about 10.5, and that put me maybe 2,500 feet above Interstate 80 for most of the route. So, you know, I wasn't that high, and frankly, I was at about 10.5, and the peaks to my left and right were somewhat lower than that. They were probably in the 9,000-foot range. So I felt like, you know, I just didn't feel that uh, vulnerable because, I, you know, it would have been easy enough for me to turn around if, if there were any weather or any, anything. And, you know, it was, a, so it was a fairly, again, fairly uneventful. Uh, now, when you're coming down into the Salt Lake Basin, it gets challenging because, the controlled airspace kind of butts right up against the foothills of the mountain. So you got to kind of, you know, lose a lot of altitude fairly quickly to get below the, the class B for Salt Lake City. So that, mm-hmm. that posed a challenge and, you know, you definitely had to be on your toes, but, the, you know, in terms of actually navigating the mountains, that wasn't a particular problem again, because I chose, you know, I chose a clear day with fairly calm winds. I mean, I think that's, that's the key. And did you go in the morning or late afternoon yeah, I went in the morning. I mean, I I, I was uh, you know, that, that was another basic rule of thumb that I'd read somewhere is you know you're going to cross mountains much better to do it in the morning before before the winds pick up, mm-hmm. pick up and um, you know so go early when the winds are calm. And sure enough, I actually left Rollins pretty early. I think I must have left around 7 a.m. and I think I was I was in probably down in Salt Lake City by nine o'clock or something. So I, if there were any mountain wave to develop, it was likely going to be after that. Um, you know, after that, I, I had I crossed a lot of uh, across the Salt Lake City Basin and a lot of the sort of Nevada desert. But it was mostly, again, following the route of Interstate 80, not any big, particularly big mountains until, of course, you get to Reno and then you have the Sierra Nevada. And those mountains are pretty high. I can't remember exactly how high. But again, I, I flew at about 10.5 and um, I kind of flew, I think, just to the north of Mount Rose, which is right, right outside uh, Reno. And then 
also just to the north of Lake Tahoe and, and Truckee and Donner Pass. Uh, one of the things that struck me over the Sierras was, was how quickly that crossing was over. I mean, it seemed like, you know, I was, I was sort of over the snowy mountains for maybe 30 minutes, and then and then I was descending into the Central Valley. It just didn't take very long. Uh, and again, I did it on a calm, clear day. So, you know, no big deal. Now, obviously, weather can change quickly in the mountains, and uh, you should never sort of take it for granted. But I, I felt like with the weather information that I had available that I could stay out of trouble, uh, and I did. Hey, listeners. Do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. The route that you just walked us through, you chose that route because that's what they flew in the transcontinental air race? Yes, exactly right. And, and, and by a happy coincidence, you know, the, the route that they chose was, was the route I would have chosen anyway, at least going, going, if I were taking sort of the central route, I mean, there's different ways to cross the country in an airplane, as you know, there's a northern route and this is sort of the more central route, which is the one I took. And then there's a southern route through New Mexico. And I'd actually read a book called Flight of Passage by Rinker Buck about crossing the continent in a Piper Cub in 1966. He and his teenage brother did it when they were both kids. Yeah, I read the same book. Yeah, it's a great book. <laughs> it is a great it's book. A, it's a great book. And as I recall, they went south because that was where the, the terrain, you know, they determined that the, ter- the terrain would be friendliest. So I think if you, if, you, know, if you wanted the, the, the lowest route, you might go south. And in fact, in, the, in 1919, some army of officials argued for the southern route for that, that reason. They thought the mountains were too high along the route they ultimately chose. But the fact is, if you want to cross via Salt Lake City, you're going to follow essentially the same route today that you did in 1919 for the very same reason. It's just it's the lowest terrain. So some of the lessons learned from that for the rest of us are you, you had a very uh, deliberate reason why you wanted to take that route, but still you yeah. put a lot of thought into and research in other routes available and what the difference would be. And then you put a lot of thought into the time of day that you were going to do it, the conditions that you would and would not accept. So you had some go and no-go criteria as far as winds and weather. And that seems to be really instructive for the rest of us who are thinking about uh, such a trip. Uh, absolutely. I mean, if the weather looked at all sketchy, I just, I, you know, I wasn't in an RA. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone. It's that simple. And, um, you know, as it happens on both my westbound and eastbound journeys, the weather across the mountains was, was pretty good in both directions. Now, coming back when I flew through Wyoming, it was overcast, but the ceilings were pretty high. I mean, I think about 12,000 12, feet, and it was calm. It was, you know, the, the main thing I was worried about was winds. I mean, the visibility was good. There was no wind, and so the overcast wasn't really a factor. And, you know, obviously, I'd looked at the weather forecast. I wasn't expecting any, any particularly nasty weather. And had, I, had there been any nasty weather in the area, I just, I just wouldn't have gone. And that was a lesson I actually learned early in the trip. You know, right out of the gate, when I, when I took off out of Long Island, uh, I encountered bad weather fairly quickly in Rochester, New York. I got as far as Rochester, and then the ceilings lowered. You know, I landed in Rochester, and the next morning I woke up, and it was like 1,500 feet, you know, kind of drizzling, just lousy weather. And, you know, I, I, it was VFR, but I, I, I just wasn't going to fly in that kind of weather. And um, 
And so it was an easy choice. I had work to do in Rochester anyway. It's a nice city. So I just spent three days in Rochester waiting for the skies to clear. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. you have to kind of roll with it if you're a VFR pilot. Yeah, very, very good point. I mostly fly VFR. And you just have to be willing to uh, adjust your schedule if you can. You know, um, whenever I'm headed on a trip, I'll always try to realize that uh, that I'm going to do plus or minus a day. You know, right. if the weather looks really clear the day prior than the day that I wanted to go, then I'll pack the airplane up and go. Just take advantage of the weather and same thing coming home, you know. So Exactly. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's very helpful to have that ability and to use it. Right. Right. And that's, that's, that's in a way part of the fun out of it. You just kind of don't get too locked in. I mean, I suppose if I were using my airplane exclusively for business, I'm, I might feel differently, but uh, I haven't been too inhibited by it. I mean, I really, as I said, I had a couple bad days in Rochester, but by and large, I was able to fly pretty much every day I wanted to. And, and even with the skies overcast, you know, as long as visibility is good and you've got an ample ceiling and, and light winds, it's just, you know, you can get where you need to go. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I fly a lot of VFR. It's very rarely an issue. And the most important thing for me is uh, is visibility. You know, even with relatively low ceilings, I mean, assuming you can still be legal and, and all that and clear mountains. And um, the bigger issue to me is I, I want the good visibility down low. And with that, it gives you a lot of options, especially if you're in a slower airplane, like a Super Cub. I've done a lot of cross-country flying in a Super Cub. Mm-hmm. That, that's the key issue to me is the visibility. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the other... The other thing that I was worried about before I left, uh, you know, because of the time of year, basically, was convective activity. And, you know, obviously, you know, you learn very early on in your training, you don't go anywhere near thunderstorms. What is it? I think the FAA recommends 20 miles separation. But having done the trip, I kind of feel like if you've got decent avionics, it's not that hard to avoid thunderstorms. And if you keep your eyes open, I mean, often, you know, you, you see the buildups um, in the distance. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I encountered a lot of thunderstorms, but I was always able to give them a wide berth. Thanks, I would say, thanks to my panel, largely. And, uh, you know, it's just in some ways, it was just like missing trucks on the freeway. You just, and and <laughs> it, just, it just wasn't that hard. You just, you know, you plan for it. And, I, I, you know, I know that one has to be careful about, you know, over-reliance on, on the avionics and, you know, the, that the, it's also was drummed into my head that, you know, the weather data you're seeing on your screen is several minutes old and it can change rapidly. So I always tried to bear that in mind. It's not like I was going to kind of shoot any gaps between closely spaced cells, but in terms of seeing fronts coming, I mean, when I was coming, coming back, coming back east, I had hoped one day to make it from, uh, I think it was North Platte to uh, Des Moines, and about halfway into my trip, it was just obvious from the panel that I wasn't going to be landing in Des Moines. It was just like a big red and purple blob right over the middle of Iowa. And um, so I landed in Omaha, spent the night in Omaha. It wasn't a big deal. So continuing on that theme, though, in cockpit weather, such a tremendous advantage for us these days in, uh, in general aviation. So it sounds like that was really key for your trip. It really was. And, and I grew, you know, more and more comfortable with it and um, really relied on it heavily. And it's, it's not just for the sort of the visual representation on the screen, but it was also nice to know, you know, well, an hour out, what the surface winds were at your destination, you know, just to be able to check that in a nanosecond, you know, on, on the Garmin was, was great. Uh, and that alerted me to the fact that, you know, when I was coming into Sydney, as I said, that I was going to face a challenging crosswind, which, which was good to know. And, and if it were 
perhaps a little higher, I might well have gone elsewhere. But uh, uh, yeah, so that, and that was a huge change. I mean, that, compared to 40 years ago, I mean, I felt, you know, I sort of felt like Rip Van Winkle when I started flying again, because you know, all this uh, digital avionics, it's, it's such a game changer. You know, we didn't have any of that, obviously. Uh, so it, it, it gave me a lot of confidence, actually, particularly in the Midwest. Fantastic. So, John, are there any things we haven't touched on? Any other kind of incidents or? Well, there was one, one thing that actually doesn't fall into one of these specific categories, but is also sort of an important lesson that I learned. And that's about just sort of expecting the unexpected. And in this case, this had nothing to do with weather. Um, I was flying from uh, Rochester, flying west once the weather, once the ceilings lifted a bit in Rochester. The visibility still wasn't great. I mean, I suppose the ceilings were, I don't know, 2,500 or something like that. And, And the visibility was maybe, I don't know, six to eight miles or something. And it was, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't, wasn't crystal clear, but it was good enough that I felt like I could safely fly. And of course, before you take off, you know, when you're, when you know, you're going to be flying fairly low, good idea to go over your route in advance and look for, you know, towers and other obstructions. And just so you're aware of the terrain you'll be crossing. So I'd done all that. I was feeling pretty good. No problem. Just happily flying along. And I was flight following, handed me off to the Buffalo uh, control tower. And um, I was talking to them and they said, you know, enter on a you know, midfield downwind for runway, whatever. I can't remember the details. So I was all set up, ready to go. I was on my 45 and they said, oh, airport's closed. <laughs> and uh, it turned out there was a disabled aircraft on, on, the, on the runway at the main runway, intersection of the, of the two main runways. So nobody was landing. And so there was commercial traffic and they were also told to peel off and, you know, circle somewhere. And, um, you know, it's just something that had never, and maybe it should have, and never in a million years had it occurred to me that I would ever be confronted with like a last minute runway closure or airport closure. And I uh, hadn't planned for it, hadn't thought about it. It wasn't a dangerous situation. It was just unexpected. So I said, huh, well, that's, that's a new one. <laughs> so what does one do when, when your destination airport is closed? You have two options. Um, you can go out and circle and wait, uh, or you can go land somewhere else. So initially, I chose the first option because I thought, well, how long can it really take to, you know, tow an aircraft off the runway? I thought it would probably just be, you know, 10-minute delay or something. So I went out, and I found a highway intersection outside the, I think it was a Class D airport. And uh, I just circled the highway intersection at about 2,000 feet for, I don't know, 10 minutes. And meanwhile, I could hear the, you know, the JetBlue guys asking the tower you know, when are you going to reopen? And the tower was saying, we don't know. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought, well, that's not very reassuring. And meanwhile, the weather was definitely not getting better. It was the visibility seemed to be sort of closing in a little bit. And it just, it wasn't great visibility. And meanwhile, I just rem- remembered that I'd flown right over an uncontrolled airport on my way to Buffalo that was only maybe 10 miles to my east. So I thought, well, I'll just go land there. And that's what I did. And it was complete non-event. You know, I had a nice cup of coffee in the, at the FBO and then called the FBO in Buffalo and asked if they were open. And they said, yeah, actually, they, we, they just reopened and I took off and landed. But again, not a big deal in and of itself, but just a good lesson in, you know, always be ready to improvise because you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And I think the specifics of, you know, uh, how do you uh, expect the uninspired unexpected. Well, I think it is by planning to give yourself buffer, mm-hmm. right? So planning for more fuel than than you are actually going to need. Yep. Planning for weight 
hour or two, if you can, after the weather is supposed to clear, the forecast says it's going to clear, instead of planning to arrive right at the time when the weather's going to clear. So if it's delayed or the fog's late or whatever, right? I think that planning for the unexpected is a great tip. And how you do that is give yourself buffer in, in every way that you can. Right. And I think probably, you know, again, one of the lessons that I took away from that is, you know, you always have an alternate. And I confess I probably hadn't given that much thought. I mean, you know, there are other airports in the Buffalo area, so I I knew it wasn't going to be a big deal. But next time, you know, now when I when I go somewhere, I think, okay, if that airport doesn't work out for whatever reason, you know, it's good to know that there's an airport over here, an airport over there, that kind of thing. And the other thing you mentioned about fuel, that's, that's also absolutely right. I mean, I my plane has a really long range. I mean, in economy cruise, I think it can go for like eight hours, which is much longer than I can. Whoa, but uh, yeah. but in any case, uh, so, so fuel was just not going to be an issue. But even so, I topped up every time I landed because a, fr- a pilot friend of mine said to me, the only time you have too much fuel is when there's a fire. So I always remembered that. Um, and, uh, and and there just wasn't, wasn't a reason not to. Why not carry as much fuel as you can safely carry? So um, again, many, many, many lessons learned on this trip. John, thank you so much for sharing your uh, experience with us. There are some lessons learned for all of us, but especially for relatively young pilots thinking about going outside that 100-mile, 100 $100 hamburger range and really trying to go take advantage of the freedom that uh, that we get in this country flying general aviation. I know that you're writing a book about the experience and the 1919 Transcontinental Air Race. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit uh, about the book and how it's coming? Not at all. I am indeed working on a book about this race, which at the time was a huge event. I mean, there were the whole country was riveted by this spectacle. There were something like eight front page stories in a period of several weeks in the New York Times alone. And, uh, uh, it, you know, it was, it was a big deal. It was right after World War One, and really nobody knew what the future was for aviation. Everyone knew that it was sort of a game-changing technology, but so far it really hadn't proved itself in in the civilian arena. There was no commercial uh, aviation sector to speak of. There were very few manufacturers. And this was in contrast to Europe, which really had surged way ahead of the United States in terms of its embrace of aviation. So Billy Mitchell, who was the sort of great visionary strategist uh, in the uh, U.S. Air Service, was determined to prove to the American public and to Congress that, you know, aviation was a good bet. In some respects, it didn't quite work out. There were, in the course of this three or four week contest, there were something like 54 crashes, uh, seven fatalities, countless forced landings. There was a lot of editorial comment about you know, the unnecessary waste of life. On the other hand, eight planes did actually finish the round trip journey, and they did kind of prove the broader point, which is that even with this very inadequate technology that aircraft could inflect fly long distances. They just needed, you know, more reliable engines. They needed better airfields. The airfields were really just sort of improvised, basically, you know, leased from the local farmer or whatever. They they weren't real airports. And uh, sure enough, within a few months, within a year anyway of the race, the uh, U.S. uh, mail was actually flying along the same route that, that Mitchell's aviators had, in some sense, pioneered. So in that sense, I guess you could say it was sort of a success, and Hap Arnold, the great World War II uh, Army Air Corps general, would later call it the foundation of commercial aviation in the United States, which may have been a bit of an overstatement, but I, you know, I see what point he was driving at. So for this reason, I thought it was worth a book, and luckily a publisher agreed with me. Um, the manuscript is due in two years, and uh, the book will be out uh, soon after, I hope. Wonderful. Well, we look forward to reading it when it comes out. So thanks for sharing that with us, and thanks for sharing your adventure. Thanks very much, Richard. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary, 
I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. <laughs>